I'm a killer. A murdering bastard, you know that? And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. Did you see that, Zack? Clear as a crisp spring morning. Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of The Screaming Chronicles. Now, if you missed the news, this is going to be my new episode format going forward. I'm going to put out every month or two and talk about everything from TV to movies to games to anime, pretty much a little bit of everything. In this debut episode, I'm going to be covering the PlayStation Showcase that took place on Wednesday, May 24th, and covering everything that was announced or that happened during that show. And then I'm going to have a review for you of Common Rider Black Sun, which is the latest entry in the long-running Common Rider series. And then next will be a review of Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves, which just came to VOD recently. And then I'll have a segment on the game Hogwarts Legacy and wrap things up with the Winter 2022 Anime Season Review. I will have timestamps as I realize that not everything's going to be for everyone, so feel free to skip around wherever. And as always, when I'm done with this, be sure to let me know your feedback. Now this was a big seven days of news here, and I want to start off with a few smaller items that maybe will get swept under the rug with this other stuff going on. But first of all, we got a new Mortal Kombat game announced. It will be called Mortal Kombat 1. It is a sort of a reboot. It looks like it takes place after Mortal Kombat 11's DLC. And the trailer they released was strictly a trailer. There was no fighting or anything. That will be debuted at the Summer Games Fest in a couple weeks, which will be the opening segment of my June episode of this show. But the story, you basically get a story trailer. There's not much to it. You see some really good-looking visuals. You get to see some series-favorite characters and things like that. But details on the game itself are pretty scant. It will be releasing September 19th, though, so not too long to wait and is said to have an immersive story campaign. Now, I'm not sure how that's going to line up with past Mortal Kombat games, because I feel like they've had pretty good story modes since Mortal Kombat 2011, and, you know, really had 
quicker and really well-told stories. I think they're hit or miss for sure. There's ups and downs. But I thought Mortal Kombat 2011's was excellent, so hoping for some good things here. It's a good sign that they opened with that story mode, but I love almost every mode in Mortal Kombat games and play the crap out of those things, so I'm sure it'll be good either way. Next up, the Front Mission remake, which was called Front Mission First, has been exclusive to Switch for a while now, but it will be coming to PS4, and they didn't announce a date or anything, but it is a remake of the original Front Mission, and the reason we found out about this was the trophies leaked for it. I'm pretty excited about this. I was pretty bummed that it was exclusive to the Switch, as I don't have a Switch, and there are several of these remake or remasters that they're putting out that I want to play. Now, I've never played the original Front Mission, but I am in for just about anything with mechs, so I will be checking this one out when it drops on PS4. And it's good news that it is migrating off of not just being on the Switch. And finally, before I get into the PlayStation Showcase, The Lords of the Fallen, which is the sequel to, I think, the 2015 or 16 game Lords of the Fallen. It is a Souls-like type game, and that sequel will be releasing in October, which you're going to find here pretty soon. September and October are getting pretty packed, but that's going to release on 10-13. Okay, let's move on to the PlayStation Showcase because there is a ton to talk about. In this hour-long video, they showed 33 different games, which is crazy. It was a breakneck pace for sure. Expectations were definitely high since they haven't had one of these since, I think, September of 2021. And I gotta say, after seeing this, I'm a bit mixed. There's some good stuff here for sure, but there's also a pretty tight lid kept on the actual PlayStation Studios games. So I'm hoping we don't have to wait another year or another year and a half for another one of these types of events. That would be pretty heartbreaking. But I'm going to go in chronological order and go down through everything that happened within this. In terms of games, there was some hardware announced that's a very much like a, a streaming or a cloud device. I'm not going to get too much into that. Um, there were some headphones announced, wireless headphones. I'm not going to get into that slight hardware that was mentioned, but I am going to go down through the game announcements and trailers. Now, one thing, I believe there was really only one game that they went into a deep dive on. Most of these were just quick trailers, a couple minutes long. We didn't get a ton out of some of them, and I think that's what's driving my disappointment, even though there was a lot of exciting stuff on display. So first up, before Jim Ryan even came out and did his little brief message, we had a game called Fair Games from Haven Studios. Honestly, even though I probably won't play this game, the trailer was pretty cool, and I think this show set a pretty good tone early on. But Fair Games is by Haven Studios, which is a newly acquired team, and it basically looks like some kind of a heist shooter, a competitive heist shooter is what they called it, um, and it will come out to PS5 and PC when it does come out. We're not sure when, 
but it was a cool little trailer. I'm not the biggest multiplayer fan, but seems like a lot of the stuff in this showcase is going in that direction. Then we got Jim Ryan coming out and talking for a little bit, and after that was a very funny and cool trailer for Helldivers 2. Now, the first Helldivers was a top-down bullet hell shooter. This one looks like it is switched to third person, but I think it's still going to be that overwhelming amount of enemies and bullet hell type gameplay. So I'm not sure I'll check that out, but it did look cool. And these two first games almost sold me, even though I probably won't play them. Uh, looks like it does still have co-op, though, and it is set to release sometime later in 2023. Then we had Immortals of Avium, and this is a single-player magic first-person shooter. So, you know, you have guns and magic as well. And I've been following this game for a little while. It releases on July 20th, and it'll be on PS5, Xbox Series S, and PC. But this is out of that EA Originals label. Now, some other recent EA Originals were Wild Hearts and It Takes Two. It seems like they're really stepping up their game with this stuff, and I'm I'm really into this one. I think it looks cool. It's going to be a little bit of a lower budget game for sure, but I, I'm excited to test it out. You know, it's a single player game. It looks like it's almost from a forgotten era. It looks like it's, and not visually wise, but it seems and feels a little bit like a PS3 or Xbox 360 game. I'm interested in it, and that's on my radar. I'll be curious what kind of reception that gets when it comes out, but that's one I'm watching for sure. Then we had Ghost Runner 2, which is the sequel to Ghost Runner, obviously. And this trailer, even though Ghost Runner is not something I'm into, this trailer looked really good. I mean, the first five trailers of this had me really excited, and I couldn't wait to see what was next at this point. But Ghost Runner 2 will release later this year. It's definitely a tough game with uh, some very difficult bosses, things like that, but that's coming to PS5, PC, and Xbox Series consoles again later this year. Okay, next up was a very interesting game, Phantom Blade Zero. Recently, we've been getting a lot of formerly Chinese series like uh, Sword and Fairy and Wanyan Sword things like that have been making their way to the West and making their way to PlayStation. And I think this is another one of those. Honestly, first off the bat, you'll see it's very much like a samurai game. It's described as, I think they described it as a hack and slash. It has some like horror elements, but it's definitely set in that samurai world. Um, and it's like a third person action RPG. I'm not sure if it's because I saw a headline about it being a Souls-like. I'm not sure if that's true or you can even gleam that. I think it said it was a brutal or punishing world or something like that. But I don't know if that necessarily was referring to the gameplay or just the world itself. I'm typically not into those types of games, but I might give this one a shot if it's received well. There's no mention of any kind of release date, so it's probably going to be a little bit... But I'll warn you, this one looks a little rough around the edges. The graphics weren't necessarily pristine or anything like that, but I think it looks fun. I guess we'll see if we see more of this game and see how it turns out, but I was very intrigued by that. Ever since Ghost of Tsushima, 
and Sekiro before that, there's been a resurgence of these samurai type games and, uh, you know, things like Rise of the Ronin, which was in the PlayStation State of Play, I think. And that looked really cool. So there's a resurgence of these types of games. I'm hoping we get some more Onimusha, but it seems like Capcom has a ton of things going on over there. But that one looks cool. Then we had Sword of the Sea, and this is a giant squid game. There's people that are working on this behind um, Abzu and Journey and games like that. Not my thing. I don't like the, the art style or anything like that, but it looks like a very cool one of those games. They introduced a mechanic where you are moving around the world on this floating sword, and that's kind of how you traverse. I know in those games there's not a lot of like combat or anything like that. It's much more about the atmosphere and moving through the world. And it looks to be more of the same of that. So very much in that vein, if you're into that type of game, I think that's one to look out for. Then we have the Talos Principle 2. And the Talos Principle 2 looked very cool. I'm not necessarily into puzzle type games like that, kind of open world puzzles. But I'll tell you, the trailer looked pretty cool, pretty great. But this one's set to release later in 2023. It'll be on PS5, Xbox Series consoles, and PC. And then there was Neva. And Neva has this more stylistic animation style and art style. And it looks pretty pretty cool, honestly, the art style. It's a game about a girl and a wolf, and she's basically raising this wolf from a baby. They're said to be puzzle and platform type gameplay. You'll be doing things like that, and that is set for a 2024 release. Again, not something that I'll probably play, but I think this showcase did a good job of putting a little something for everyone in there, and I think there's enough in here, and we'll get into that a little later. But Up next was Cat Quest, and I'm not going to really get into that one at all. It didn't look like anything I'd be interested in. We just got a brief look at it, but that is set for 2024 release on PS5 and PS4. Then we had Square Enix's logo pop up and wasn't sure what we were going to get. And what we basically got was Foam Stars. And Foam Stars has a little bit of that Fortnite style and feel to it. And the catch here is that you're actually shooting foam at each other. So it's very much like a Splatoon. I think I got very much Splatoon vibes. Uh, this one will be coming to PS5 and PS4 when it comes out. If I hadn't made it clear, it is a multiplayer type game. It didn't look terrible, but again, that's not really my type of thing. So I'll leave that to those who are into it. Then we had Plucky Squire, which is this game that looks like it's set in a storybook and you're moving through it. I'm sure it's going to appeal to a certain crowd. I'm not one of those crowds, but it'll come out later this year on PS5. Then we had Teardown, which is this kind of pixelated voxel-style game about taking things apart. The pitch in the article that I read was basically saying, you know, this is a heist game where you can tear down walls and everything else in the environment to make shortcuts. Um, that one's coming to PS5. Don't have a ton to say on it, though. All right, next up was a very weird intro to this game. It, we're basically seeing animals go through and on an ant, I believe, at first, and then you're a bird and the bird's flying and a snake jumps up and eats the bird. And then 
we see old Naked Snake. Yes, we see Naked Snake himself, the artist who would come to be known as Big Boss. This is, of course, the Metal Gear Solid 3 remake, and it is titled Metal Gear Solid Delta Snake Eater. So pretty much nothing to go off of, but that iconic Bond-style music started playing around the end of the trailer. It's kind of a wild ride to go on, but pretty much nothing there at all. It seems like the direction they're taking it, they're going to remake the games in chronological order, or at least I hope they do. Um, We would start with three and then get into, I don't know how far back they're going to go. Obviously, I don't think they'd be remaking Metal Gear Solid Five. But we do have Peace Walker that comes in between those two games, and then you have the first two Metal Gear games, and then Metal Gear Solid, Metal Gear Solid 2, Metal Gear Solid 4, etc. So I'm really excited for Konami to get some of their franchises back out there, and I hope this remake lives up to expectations and maybe fixes some of the issues with Snake Eater. Because honestly, going back, I think MGS2 is the only one of those older games that still holds up gameplay-wise. There's some pretty bad parts of MGS3, and of course, MGS1 being a PlayStation 1 game, there's some major issues there too, but very excited to see when that comes to fruition. Right now, we really don't have anything. There was a pretty big announcement at the end of that trailer, though, as Metal Gear Solid 1, 2, and 3 will all be coming to PlayStation 5 this fall. So I'm really looking forward to playing those. I wonder if they'll be in kind of a remastered form, if they're just taking that collection that they put out earlier and re-putting on here. But no mention of Peace Walker. So I'm very curious to see what we're getting. If we're just getting straight ports, if we're getting these up anything like that, I don't know. It is interesting to note that they called this Volume 1. So we might see Peace Walker and MGS4 come out later, but for now we're focusing on this announcement. Up next, got a very interesting looking game and one that I was excited about from the trailer, and I don't know if I will be after I read kind of what the game's about, but it's called Towers of Aghazba, and it's set for release in 2024. Gave me a lot of Zelda vibes at first, except in a more indie style game. After reading about it, what this game is about is you're building, basically you're taking your tribe to this uninhabited island. Humans are no longer welcome there. You take your tribe there and try to strike a balance between building up settlements and a civilization and maintaining the ecosystem and keeping that part thriving as well. It's a cool concept, and I don't think something that's necessarily out there, but I don't know if it's going to appeal to me at the end of the day. Uh, We'll have to wait and see on that one. Next up was a Final Fantasy XVI trailer. I'm not really interested in seeing more of that one, so I didn't pay very close attention, but that game's looking amazing, and it'll be coming out June 22nd, so not too much longer to wait now. Then we had Alan Wake 2, and this is really like the triple-A big-budget game section here for a little bit. But Alan Wake 2 was finally re-revealed, and it looks like there's a new character. It gave some definite Twin Peaks vibe, just like the original. 
And that one is announced to be coming out 1017. So I love the original Alan Wake. It was exclusive to Xbox 360 originally, but it was a really fun and quirky horror game that, again, took very much inspiration from things like Twin Peaks. Now that one this time around is coming to PS5, Xbox Series consoles, and PC, so it'll be there for everyone to play. Then we moved into Assassin's Creed Mirage, which will be coming out a week earlier on 1012. It's not necessarily a week earlier, but it's got that weird Thursday release. And this is promising to be a more traditional Assassin's Creed game. The, that's going to come across everything as far as platforms go. And I'm kind of looking forward, because I've been a huge fan of the Assassin's Creed series since the beginning. I'm kind of looking forward to an Assassin's Creed game that isn't 50, 100 hours long. I want that standard, what we used to get, and we haven't got that in a while. So I'm at least excited for this one, even though I did love a game like Valhalla. And then a game that will probably be geared toward one of my fellow horror movie podcast hosts, and that is Victor Rodriguez, and that is Revenant Hill. And this game is about becoming a witch's familiar, or at least that's what the write-up says. You do play as a cat, or at least that's what it shows in the trailer. And that one will be coming to PS4 and PS5 at an undetermined future date. We keep moving on and see a more story-focused trailer for Street Fighter VI, which will be coming out on 6-2, so not long to wait now for that one. I believe that is next Friday at this point. Not a huge Street Fighter fan, but hey, I'm always open to trying a new fighting game. Then we had a game called Altros, which is a pixel-style game that is a very much a side-scroller described as a science fiction side-scroller. This one didn't really do much for me, but um, it is coming out in 2024 on PS5 and PS4. Then we had Tower of Fantasy, and now we're speaking my language here. This looks like an anime-style game with mechs. It seems to be a um, an open-world cyberpunk role-playing game. That'll be coming out on PS4 and PS5 sometime this summer. The one thing that worries me is there is this uh, optional co-op mode. Hopefully, you know, it plays fine in single player. But it looks really cool. It, it definitely caught my interest. Then we had Dragon's Dogma 2 on... And this trailer showed pretty much nothing. And I think this game's probably still a long way away. Even though... This is the Devil May Cry team that did Devil May Cry 5 in 2019. I still think this one's a little ways off. Hopefully it's fixed some of the glaring issues with the original. Now, I was a Dragon's Dogma fan from when it came out, but there were a lot of things wrong with that game. So, hoping for some more cool stuff with that one, but that is coming in an undisclosed time to PS5, Xbox Series consoles, and PC. Then we get into the PSVR 2 section, and I am not really interested in VR, but I will go down through all, what, six different games that they announced for PSVR 2. So first up is Five Nights at Freddy's Help Wanted, 
And this is another entry in the Five Nights at Freddy's games. This will be coming in late 2023. And I think this might be on PS5 as well as just PSVR 2. And then we had the Resident Evil 4 VR mode shown. And that looks cool as always with those. But again, I'll probably never try it. Next up was Arizona Sunshine 2. And this looks like it's a zombie shooter for sure or a zombie game for sure. But it had a lot of comedy and stuff in the trailer. So it at least had a little bit of a bent to it. Less serious type of game. Because next you had Crossfire, Sierra Squad, and Crossfire is a very popular Smilegate-developed game, and they've had several different entries. This one is the latest, called Sierra Squad, and will be coming to VR. And it is a shooter, by the way. And then we had Synapse, which was the most interesting of all of these things. This is a game where it was a shooter, but it seems like it took place inside of the bad guy or the villain's mind. So I'm very curious about that and how that game will go along and develop, but looked pretty cool. And that's coming on July 4th, so you don't have to wait too long. Then Beat Saber, which I thought was already out on PSVR 2, but that is now available as of today on PSVR 2. And it comes with a brand new pack of Queen songs for that game. And then we get into the last section of the showcase, which was PS Studios games. So these are the PlayStation First Party Studios. First up, we had two different announcements from Bungie. First, they're bringing back Marathon in a trailer that I didn't find interesting at all. Uh, I at no point was intrigued by this game, which is weird for me with a Bungie game, but hey, I I didn't see anything there. And then when I read later that we're getting this as a a PvP extraction shooter, similar to that of uh, Rainbow Six Siege or something like that, I just kind of lost all interest. It does look like it's a decent ways off, though. That one will end up coming to PS5, Xbox Series consoles, and PC. Then they came out with Destiny 2 The Final Shape, which seems to be the final part of the current Destiny storyline. They did tease that this was just a brief story trailer, and they did tease that more info would come in August, probably around Gamescom it looked like, so wait to hear more on that. Then we had Firewalks game, and this was another studio that Sony had acquired recently, and I think just you know, in the last week or two, and this game's called Concord. Don't really get a lot from the teaser trailer that we see. It is supposed to come out next year, and it is a PvP multiplayer first-person shooter for PlayStation 5 and PC. I thought the teaser was interesting, but again, I'm not really a multiplayer person, so I'm probably going to have to pass on Concord unless it has some type of a single-player element. Doesn't seem like it really does. And then, if I couldn't be any more disappointed with the way this showcase ended, we had a trailer for the Gran Turismo movie. Now that has, listen, it looked fine. That has no place in a PlayStation showcase. Hated that. It was a terrible move. Not good at all. 
but we did end the show with our only deep dive of this entire showcase, and that was for Spider-Man 2. We saw a very interesting opening little cutscene with Kraven the Hunter. Then we switch back to New York City, and Kraven's there, and he's hunting game. And it looks like Peter Parker has the symbiote suit on. It seems like the symbiote might be taking over him. We all know how that story kind of plays out, but the big thing is that it is not a co-op game. It is a single-player game, and Insomniac had confirmed as much earlier. But you can switch seamlessly between Miles and Peter Parker. I don't know how that's going to work out. Um, if you can do it all the time, like Grand Theft Auto Five or whatever, but it looked very good, and you know it looks like more Spider-Man. It looks like they're upping the ante this time, and I got to tell you, this has probably been one of my most anticipated games ever since the first game was over, because you knew they were going to get a Spider-Man two, and Miles Morales was really good from 2020. Insomniac between those and Ratchet and Clank are Rift Apart and the upcoming Wolverine game, which we haven't seen anything of, I think they're really knocking things out of the park. I really love Insomniac. And yeah, this Spider-Man 2 just looked incredible. I could go through more details, but you should go over there and watch that. That was by far the longest video in this entire presentation. I was a little disappointed they didn't give an exact release date. They just said fall 2023 especially because we've been hearing things all over that they were they have a specific release date pinned down in September. It would make sense because that's, you know, when the first game came out. But either, either way in September or October it seems like they're going to be elbowing room, which Spider-Man doesn't really need to do that. Spider-Man is a huge property, doesn't need any help. It's going to sell a ton of copies, but you know, you have Starfield and Mortal Kombat 1 coming out in September, and then you've got, we just found out with Assassin's Creed Mirage and Alan Wake 2 and uh, The Lords of the Fallen coming out in October, so it's getting pretty busy over there. So before I get into my impressions of the showcase in general, let's talk about what wasn't there, and the specifically the PlayStation Studios part of this. First of all, it's weird that... And maybe they're just waiting, but Final Fantasy VII Remake Part Two, which I think is called Rebirth, it's it was set, you know, for a winter of 2023 release or a winter uh, release at least. I don't know if it means it'll be like January, February, but it was supposed to come this next winter. We haven't seen anything of that game at all. Not really much, you know. And I was surprised that we didn't see that. We didn't see Kingdom Hearts. We didn't see Dragon Quest Twelve. We didn't see any of that. They were focusing on the foam game, Foam Stars, and Final Fantasy Sixteen. So that was a little weird. In looking at it, honestly, if I'm looking down through here, if we're talking about third-party big titles, I, I mean, Metal Gear Solid... Um, 3 Remake is a huge third-party title, but they didn't really show anything in that. Uh, Final Fantasy 16 we've seen to death. Same with Street Fighter 6, and those are coming out soon. AC Mirage is a big one, but it's also kind of a spinoff in a different direction. 
then you have more niche things. I mean, I'm really excited about Dragon's Dogma 2 and Alan Wake 2, but there's definitely more niche things. That's really all the major third-party support that you got in this thing. So nothing... I mean, the Snake Eater reveal was cool, but I think we've known that's come been coming for a while. It's at least leaked. As far as, like, the big first-party stuff, we saw Haven. We saw Firewalk. We saw Bungie, which is kind of a different thing, but we did see Bungie. And we saw Insomniac. Now, PlayStation has been quiet for a long time. They haven't really revealed a lot of stuff. We haven't seen Wolverine since last, or since 2021, September 2021, I believe. And we don't know when the next time we're going to get one of these is. So we know things like Spider-Man 2 was coming this fall for sure. And we know that something like Helldivers 2, which isn't really... It's like a second-party game. You know, it's a an independent developer that is still putting their game pretty much on Sony consoles. I think Helldivers 1 was known as a big Sony game. But that's really about it. And if you look, they've been talking about their new games-as-a-service model. And they've been talking about, you know, 12 games-as-a-service game. And it was 10. So now they have 12 of those in development at their studios and I would like to, or I would probably think that Helldivers 2 isn't included in that. So it's really that, and I think they said like maybe 40% of their games are their traditional single-player type games. So first of all, I'm not really that impressed. I'm not going to play fair games. I'm probably not going to play Concord. Now, would be fair, we haven't seen any of that, but if it's multiplayer only, I'm not really interested. Those might be cool. I mean, they looked like pretty good quality games from what we saw. We didn't really see a lot of anything. Uh, But you have Marathon, which is definitely multiplayer, games of a service type thing. I don't know if Destiny 2, the final shape, counts. But what we're seeing is that big emphasis on multiplayer stuff. And that's pretty much all we saw here. We didn't see Wolverine. And even though it is a multiplayer game, we didn't see... The Last of Us Factions from Naughty Dog. We knew ahead of time not to expect anything from Ghost of Tsushima since they said that wouldn't be making an appearance here, but what else do you have? Are you going to release Concord and maybe Fair Games in 2024? And what else is there? Is that it? Because I was kind of thinking Factions would be out by the end of 2024. I was kind of thinking that Ghost of Tsushima 2 would be out either in 2024 or 2025. And I was thinking that Wolverine was probably decently far along since we know Insomniac pumps games out. So there's a lot missing. We didn't hear anything from Sony Bend. We didn't hear anything from that second team at Santa Monica. We didn't hear anything from an Uncharted game, which has been heavily rumored. We didn't hear anything from that second game that we know is brewing at Guerrilla Games, or at least was once upon a time. We didn't hear anything about second-party title Stellar Blade, which looks excellent and kind of like Immortals of Avium looks like something from a bygone era. There are a lot of PlayStation Studios we heard nothing about, so they're still keeping very quiet. They did blow out Spider-Man 2, or at least did a big 
review of it. I don't need to see any more of that game. I've been sold, but that was excellent. I just don't know where they go from here. I'm hoping they have more to share later this year. I think they're still a part of the Summer Games Fest, so hopefully we'll see something else from Sony, but it's looking like pretty slim pickings. And I was thinking, and while this game, while this showcase had a ton of cool stuff there and stuff that I was into, there felt like there was something missing, and it was a great pace. It was at least like a breakneck speed that it was going left and right and back and forth. And it's a miracle that I mostly remember what all the games were. But honestly, there wasn't a lot of meat on the bones with this stuff, and the PlayStation Studios presence was very limited and kind of disappointing. So I would, if I'm going to grade this thing, I think it's still in the B range, though. It still had a lot of good games announced, but I feel like a lot of these games we knew were coming. We knew Alan Wake 2 was coming. We knew Dragon's Dogma 2 was coming. We knew MGS3 Remake was coming. I mean, a lot of this stuff we saw coming. There were some exciting things, like I talked about, that came out of nowhere, and I'm looking forward to that stuff. And it's great to have some release dates start to fill in, even if Sony were a bunch of cowards and did not give Spider-Man 2 a release date. But yeah, overall, I'm pretty satisfied with it. But if this is what, I mean, if we have to wait another year and a half for one of these, it's not going to do it. You know, it's not going to do it for me. They need to come out and show more of their stuff. And if their stuff isn't any further along, you know, people are giving Microsoft crap for what they're doing with botching their game releases. But if if next year all we have to look forward to is the are the games from Haven and Firewalk with a uh, Fair Games and Concord? I think we're going to be in a bit of trouble, but I don't want to judge too harshly. I would love if they did another showcase in like September or August or something. That September's kind of been their traditional second chance, but this wasn't I think it was on the level of an E3 event, but I don't think it was the crazy thing that everyone thought it was going to be. And hey, maybe that's on us for getting our hopes up too much. Okay, I'm coming in here as I'm finishing the edit on this piece of the episode with just a couple pieces of news. First off, we had the Alone in the Dark remake. It had a little bit of a showcase by THQ Nordic. They put that out, and that looks pretty cool. It is going to star David Harbour as Edward Carnby, who is the protagonist of the Alone in the Dark games, and also have Jodie Comer in it as well. And that game's going to be dropping on October 25th, so you can go out and check out the about 11-minute video that they did for that one. And then we had a Warhammer a new Warhammer RTS real-time strategy game called Warhammer Age of Sigmar Realms of Ruin. And this one will be coming to PS5, Xbox Series X, and PC. And Alone in the Dark will be coming to the same platforms as well. But this is the Rare Console RTS. And I'm really excited about it. This might be my first foray into that because I haven't really... I've wanted to delve into a Warhammer real-time strategy game, but I just haven't yet. You know, like the Dawn of War games on PC, I've bought some of them, but I just haven't got into it yet. So 
I'm a little excited about that, but so far all we have is a trailer with like more story kind of elements and setup. The full gameplay reveal is coming in June, so I might be back on the next episode to talk about it. But that's all, and I will cut back to the normal show here. But that is all the talk that I'm going to do on video game news and the PlayStation Showcase. I will be back to cover Summer Games Fest and the Xbox uh, Showcase and the uh, Ubisoft Forward and all that stuff in my June episode. I will start the episode with that again. And I'm going to go into a bunch of those different segments that I talked about here. And hopefully you guys enjoy. Just let me know what else you want to hear, what you liked about this. And uh, yeah, we'll move on to the next segment. Hey everyone, so now I'm getting ready to move into a new segment where I'm going to talk about um, the Tokusatsu show, Common Rider Black Sun. I just wanted to preface a lot of the stuff you're going to hear throughout this episode, and throughout the first few episodes are from stuff that I recorded a while back. So there's definitely going to be a difference in sound quality. I was recording with a different mic back then. I think I was having some issues with background noise at some points. So some of these cuts and edits are pretty choppy. And I admit that hopefully it's better going forward and especially the newer recorded stuff in here. But I did have to repurpose some of this stuff. I went back and re-recorded intros and other things like that. So you might just get a little bit different audio quality throughout. I'm just asking please bear with me as I get this sorted out. Again, some of these I recorded months ago and just had to kind of spruce them up and make them more timely and things like that. So just wanted to give that out of the way. And right now I'm going to go ahead and dive into my very first tokusatsu review on a podcast with, once again, Common Rider Black Sun. So for this one, I stumbled upon something 
I I don't know how I got down this rabbit hole, but somehow I ended up on looking up Common Rider stuff, and that is K-A-M-E-N Rider. That is a TV series, various different, there's several different variations, and that is a Japanese TV show, and it's very much like a tokusatsu or, you know, an action show with monsters and heroes and things like that. I got down that rabbit hole, and then I ended up tripping over Common Rider Black Sun on Amazon Prime, which is a 10-episode series. I don't know if there will be a second series, second season or anything like that, but it did at least tell a complete story. And I was like, hey, this came out, you know, October 2022. It's pretty new. I'm going to watch this, see if I like it, and then review it for Phantom Galaxy. So... I really did, spoiler alert, end up liking this, but let me go ahead and set this up. I want to do, and I've been curious about this kind of stuff in the past with the Super Sentai shows, which are essentially the American counterpart of those would be Power Rangers, but they're completely different in Japan. And there's Ultraman, of course, which I haven't got into a lot. And there's a lot of TV properties of Japanese TV shows that I want to get into, but I just haven't. And I thought this was the perfect opportunity to dive in. So this show did run for 10 episodes of varying length from, I think, as short as 39 minutes, maybe I'm mistaken on that, to as much as around an hour. I like that in this day where you can just, an episode is as long as it needs to be. It doesn't have to be a certain length. It doesn't have to be this short, this long. You don't have to plan in for commercials or anything like that. I think that's pretty cool. A very vague synopsis reads... Half a century has passed since the country declared the coexistence of human and kaijin, an era of chaos. Aoi Izumi, a young human rights activist who appeals for the abolition of discrimination, meets a man. Uh, yeah, that's, it's very whatever. <sighs> what we have here, this is a remake of 1987 series Common Rider Black. And that one ran for about 51 episodes, I believe. So, and they were shorter. But I think this basically tells some of that story while also wrapping in its own piece and its own character. Aoi is a character who I don't think appears in Black at all. And I am interested to see Black to see how that one plays out. And, you know, it's an older show, so just seeing how older Common Rider is as well. But that's for another day. Let's focus on Black. Basically what happens is, and I'm brand new to Common Rider, and I think this is a great point to start in. I don't necessarily think there's continuity between most of the series, but it gives you enough to set up what the world is. There are Kaijin on one hand. They are basically like these creatures. They're animals, essentially. They're humans who are part animals or can change or transform into animals. And any various kind of animals there's not. And I think there might even be some plant-based ones as well. But it's essentially just humans. They look like humans, but they can transform into animals. They have animal blood or whatever in them. But that's what that is. And the political party that is in charge, you know, the prime minister of Japan, his political party, are behind some pretty sinister stuff. And But they have some kaijin in their ranks. And they basically are trying to keep this thing called a creation king, which supplies, like, the food to keep kaijin immortal and living forever. 
basically supplies them with that. And these people have been around in pretty much the same age since the 70s and earlier when they found the Creation King. And there are flashbacks to that time as well. So that's one group. You've got Aoi, who is opens up with her appealing to the UN to stop the discrimination. And, you know, she has a kaijin who she's very good friends with. She's human, but she's all about stopping the kaijin discrimination. And then, near the end of episode one, she meets a man as the he. And this guy is basically, he is one part of a two-part duo. He is Black Sun, and there is Shadow Moon as well. There are two different characters in this who are, I don't know if you want to call them the hero, but they are the main kind of badass kaijin. They fight evil, They, or they at least fight this political party that is opposed to them at first. And, you know, they get revealed later on in episode one of who they are, and it's kind of the typical, I think, what you would see as imagery as the hero of the Common Rider series. So that's kind of the setup that you have here. And what I want to get into now are kind of just my my talking points and my review of this series and whether you should check it out. So first and foremost, I want to give a little warning that there is a lot of graphic violence in this show. Not something I was necessarily expecting, but it's funny, you'll see the age ratings come up, and some of the episodes are, you know, rated 18, and some of them are rated 16, and it's very weird how it varies, but I think there's just as much violence in some of the ones rated 16 as others, but we're talking about you know, disembowelments, we're talking about beheadings, we're talking about some pretty gnarly stuff when it comes to violence. So that so it's not one to watch with the kids is what I was what I was going to say. I think there are better examples of these types of shows that you can watch with your kids. This isn't one of them. This is definitely taking that more dire and sinister approach, which from what I've understood, I know my buddy Will was saying that black is darker as well than like the rest of the series but then again on that there's a scene where you first see the kaijin transform and it's very kind of goofy and weird and at that point i'm like what what's going on do i am i really gonna like this but stick past that because the end of episode one you get i think what you're looking for in a cool hero with some cool fights and things like that but yeah, it it maintains this goofy, almost comedic tone sometimes with a very dark and serious story. And I think that Asian countries, a lot of them do a good job of that. We've seen South Korean films like that. Of course, a lot of stuff from Japan. They're not afraid to put in this goofy humor that seems like it would be out of place. And it works. A lot of times it works and helps you you know, get out of the darkness, because there's a lot of dark stuff that happens in this. Not just the gore and graphic violence, but there's some pretty heavy moments in this series, and I really think it does a good job of balancing the two. And also another quick note before we get into kind of the characters and story, is I really love the theme song. I think it's just called Black Sun, and it has this weight to it. I don't know if it's been used before or a similar song has been used before in common writer stuff but man is that song just weighty it has a weight to it it's like the godzilla theme it's it just has such a weight to it and it just feels right every time it comes on and they do use it at least once every episode other than like you know 
just the opening, but it's great in the different ways they use it and how the song progresses. And it really helps. I mean, when the music is good, it really helps to, to elevate the show itself. So here's some of my notes about the characters and story and all that. I think, I think the story is pretty good. First and foremost, in that first episode, it does a good job of pulling in people by the weirdness of it. I mean, you start with a very jarring scene that shows the genesis of all of this stuff. And then, like I said, we have the UN sequence. We have some protesting sequences. There are some, you know, looks at the opposing political party and where you see the Creation King for the first time. And let me tell you, the Creation King is awesome. I don't know if the Creation King exists outside of the Common Rider Black universe, but the Creation King is pretty cool. Um, also, some of the Kaijin are really cool. Some of them are pretty lame. There's like a sparrow and some things like that. But I really love like later on the Whale Kaijin and I love the Sabertooth Tiger Kaijin. And these are obviously have people and characters tied to them. But I, I love seeing some of these. The Bat Kaijin is really cool. I think there's a lot of cool stuff. Um, of course, the designs of Black Sun and Shadow Moon are really cool. So I think they do a really good job in their production. And it almost looks practical. I don't Now, I think there's probably some CG mixed in this stuff. But I really do think they do a good job of making it at least feel like it's practical and that this stuff could actually exist. Or not actually exist, but that they could have actually made all this stuff if they didn't. I mean, sometimes they just look like guys in really good-looking suits. And I think that's some of the charm of these shows, is you have these wonky-looking suits that they're wearing and they're fighting in. And I think that's, again, kind of what drew me to these things in the first place, is that hits a piece of, I don't know if it's nostalgia, but I just like it. So, Owie is definitely the centerpiece of this series, and she brings a real human element to everything. She kind of grounds everything. It's not just cool action guys facing off in battles. You have Aoi's struggle as well, and she has several different things she has to struggle with throughout the course of this series. And I think she really pulls the cast and the show together. Aoi's played by Kokoro Hirasawa, and I think she she just does an excellent job in this. She's a great character. I think she does a very good acting job. I think her character is written really well. And I, like I said, without her, and I think her and the relationship with uh, Black Sun or Kotaro Minami, which is his real name within the series, and I think they just have a great relationship and interact with each other well. There's some moments that might bring some tears to your eyes here, I'm going to say. So I think overall, the main overarching story is really good. I think it, I think for me, where it meanders and where it falls off, and I don't know how much of this was back in the 80s show. That's what I'm saying. I'm fascinated by Kamen Rider Black, and I really want to dig into it. But honestly, my biggest problem are the flashbacks. And we flashback to when, you know, Black Sun and Shadow Moon and all these other members of the Gorum party, which is that political party I talked about earlier. You know, there's several different ones of these and a guy named Oliver Johnson. And they started this group back in the 70s to almost fight Kaijin and Justice. You know, that was much more ground zero for when Kaijin were coming out just a few years. And yes, it absolutely mirrors like a civil rights movement, that kind of thing. 
you can definitely feel it's not subtle about it sometimes, especially near the end. There was a scene in the very like the epilogue part of episode 10 and I'm like wow that's almost like beat for beat of I mean it's very very heavy-handed but I think the story that it tells is a good one I mean that that discrimination civil rights story always has potential to be told really well if you handle it right and I think they do for the most part throughout this I mean there's no there's there's discrimination, but it's not, like, over-the-top most of the time. It's something where you think it could be believable. But where we get these flashback scenes of where they're building this organization, and they, you know, they have the Creation King and all this stuff, that's a little lacking for me. I didn't really like that. I felt like it took away from what was happening in the more intriguing story. So, yes, it gave some background. I honestly would have been much more... Some of the scenes, I think, are good, and there's important flashbacks, but those aren't really, like, the older ones. I think you could have got away with showing just a couple of these flashbacks that are important. The rest of them, yeah, I guess I guess you need to know to know who one character is, but honestly, they just didn't do it for me for the most part. Like I said, some of them, as you get later in the series, there are some pretty good ones that have a lot to do with the plot and where we get to, but... I think they just meander sometimes, and that's just not not for me. I would rather be back in the present day where all this other stuff is happening. But yeah, I think that is good enough for a mini-review here to see if you would even like this show. I think it's cool if you're interested in this stuff at all. Maybe check out a trailer if there is one. Right now, it is on Amazon Prime, streaming uh, with your Prime subscription. And I think there is a Blu-ray that I've seen floating around on eBay and stuff, and it looks official. I think it's just the Chinese version. You know, there's always a Southeast Asia localization that also has English in it from some of these Japanese countries. But I don't see, like, an official U.S. release yet, and it takes time. I mean, this was released in October. It aired weekly, at least in Japan. I don't know how it rolled out in America. But it was, like, the end of October it came out. So it probably didn't end in Japan until December or so. And then you're talking, there's usually a pretty good lag. So I have faith that it will get an English Blu-ray release at some point. But I don't know, because Amazon owns it. So maybe I shouldn't say that. But there is at least a Chinese import. I know I've done that with different things from Asia before and taken those Southeast Asia imports that you find on eBay. They're pretty inexpensive. And they usually have the whole series there. So that is my take on Common Rider Black Sun. I think overall it's a very solid show. It really got me into this and I'm excited to see what's next and what else I can delve into within you know this type of Tokusatsu TV series and I'm excited to get into Ultraman. I know I'll have some takers on coming on to talk about Ultraman. I'm excited to watch some of the Super Sentai shows. I know I've watched a little bit in the past. But I'm kind of, and you know, again, I'm excited to get back to Common Rider, but I think this segment can be used for various different things, talk about movies, talk about TV, whatever it is, and I think this was where I wanted to start. It wasn't necessarily where I planned on starting, but I enjoyed it. And please let me know if you're interested in checking this out, and if you do check it out, what do you think of it? But that's going to be a wrap for me, and I will catch you guys next time.
going to the next segment here on the Screaming Chronicles, and I'm going to give a short little review of Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. I was able to catch up with this one today, and this is out of theaters and is now on premium video on demand, soon to be on uh, regular VOD. But this is one where I was curious about because I heard a lot of good buzz after it came out. But the trailers, it looked like there was almost going to be too much kind of dumb humor in the movie. And I think I judged it a little harshly. It did look cool, but it seemed like there was maybe just a little too much of that kind of humor for me. But the buzz was impossible to ignore, so I went ahead and finally checked it out. This movie was directed by John Francis Daly and Jonathan M. Goldstein, and the duo was known for Game Night and Vacation, the Vacation remake, before this, so pretty much just comedies, and pretty mainstream comedies at that. The synopsis reads, A charming thief and a band of unlikely adventurers undertake an epic heist to retrieve a lost relic. But things go dangerously awry when they run afoul of the wrong people. So yeah, that's a little broad strokes. This is set in the world of Dungeons and Dragons, which I will tell you ahead of time, I have very little knowledge of and very little experience with. I do know all the names. It was cool to hear names that I've heard before, like uh, Neverwinter and Baldur's Gate and all that, as they went throughout the movie. And I'll tell you, a very important part of this is really down to the acting. I mean, you have Chris Pine in this one who plays a very charismatic rogue-type character. You've got Michelle Rodriguez in one of her more likable characters, one of the, the better roles that I've seen her in. Um, Justice Smith also gives the best performance that I've seen from him. He can come off as kind of maybe wooden sometimes and a little uh, non-emotive. And what he does in this film is just incredible compared to what else I've seen him in. I also liked Sophia Lillis in this one. She did a great job with her character. And, you know, I've pretty much liked Lillis in everything she's been in. And then you have Hugh Grant, who plays kind of an antagonist character in this film. And I have to be honest, I think I misjudged the humor in this, because maybe I was just in a good mood this morning when I was watching this, but I enjoyed the humor, and I laughed out loud a few times throughout this movie. It does have some of the dumber, more like base humor especially one with a potato that I'm not going to say really anything else about. But overall, I think the comedy is done really well. And that should really come as no surprise considering this directing duo have done comedies before this. So the cast is rock solid and the comedy is pretty good, I would say. But the thing that's most surprising is how big of a budget film this is, and we don't get a ton of big budget fantasy films. And we never really have. There have been periods, sure, where we've had more than others. But this is really, at its heart, a big budget fantasy film. 
And you have all of the fantasy touch points you would want. And I think that's where it's paying a some service to the D&D players and the, you know, the role-playing lovers out there. You know, you have certain mythical creatures and you have battles and you have characters going on journeys. And really, that's all you can ask for. I mean, the visuals in this film are beautiful. There are some great fight scenes. It has all that in addition to the comedy where I thought this was going to be much more of like a a jokey film throughout the whole thing, which, to be honest, it never takes itself too seriously. There's comedy woven in through this entire movie. But I wasn't expecting such high-budget, well-done action sequences. And I think you have that, and the film will get serious, and it'll get lost in itself a little bit. Not Not lost in itself, but you get lost in the adventure and the action and the stakes and then it just pulls out a gag that's pretty funny and I think it does a good job of balancing that kind of stuff. There are also several odes to something that you would absolutely from my understanding see in a D&D campaign. I think there are elements that definitely hint at that and that's the main point. This is a Dungeons and Dragons movie This is based off of the role-playing game, but it's so well done and so, I feel like it has such an appeal to mainstream audiences, casual moviegoers, and fantasy fans that it doesn't matter. You don't have to have played a campaign of D&D. You don't have to have gotten into any of that. It's just fun. It's fast-paced. It's funny. I mean, there's just a lot to like about this, and I was really surprised at how much I did come away liking it. And I have to reiterate the characters, and they spend enough time to make all of the characters interesting and feel like they could be their own unique characters. I gotta tell you, this is just, as someone who caught Dungeons & Dragons on one of the movie networks, whether it's Stars or Showtime or something, back in the day, this is heads and shoulders above anything that was trying to do. I think this great. This is great because it's not just trying to be a fantasy movie, it's trying to incorporate some of that D&D stuff with it. And I think this is really good. I would be curious, I think I've seen some D&D players who have had a positive reaction to this. I'd like to think it would land pretty well for them, and they're probably picking up more references and things like that than I am, but there's cool creatures in this, there's cool um, action sequences. I think I'm getting in a loop here and kind of running out of things to say about the movie, but what I want to tell you to do is absolutely check this one out. And if it's coming to regular VOD soon, there's really not an excuse you're going to be able to watch it and really just have a good time. If you're looking for that fantasy fix, don't be put off by the comedy here or the perception of comedy because really there's great fantasy action here too. But that's about all I want to say on Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. I would give it, I think I'd give it around an 8 for now. Maybe it could go a little higher. I think I really did enjoy it, but uh, maybe upon rewatch it will. And I'd really recommend it, like I said, to anyone who uh, wants a fun action blockbuster, anyone who 
is a D&D fan, obviously, or if you're just looking for a fantasy film to watch and you feel underserved, uh, this is definitely the one for you. So on to the next segment here where I'll be talking about some more video games. In particularly, I wanted to give my short little review of Hogwarts Legacy, which released back in February. So Hogwarts is a game that is developed by Avalanche Software and published by Warner Brothers. And Avalanche hasn't really done a lot of stuff, a lot of big stuff at least, prior to Hogwarts Legacy. They mostly worked on some Disney Infinity stuff and most recently Cars 3, the video game adaptation. But they were tasked with taking one of the most famous properties in the world and turning that into an open-world video game. So how did they do? Well, uh, starting off to set up the story a little bit, you start off as a fifth-year Hogwarts student who is new to Hogwarts, so you haven't been in Hogwarts before, but now you're a fifth year who's suddenly thrown into it. I think a lot of that was thrown into maybe just out of convenience for story reasons, but because that seems kind of weird to me. But anyway, so you get to create your character, and it can be, you know, male or female or whatever. And this is basically who you're going to control throughout the game. You can, you know, pick different outfits, different clothing that will increase your stats, all that kind of typical open world game stuff. So it starts out and you meet Professor Fig, who is kind of been mentoring you and preparing you to go to school at Hogwarts. And you two get attacked and end up in this weird kind of magical, ancient magical area. And the game kind of progresses from there. You do eventually make it to Hogwarts and get to, you know, interact with classes uh, go on different quests that are kind of tied into um, what was going on with what happened at the beginning of the game, and so on and so forth. So Hogwarts Legacy took me probably around 40 hours to get through. Now, I will say of note, there is an after-story quest that I did not finish because it has a level requirement, and it's not anything like, shocking or revelatory. I actually went and watched the scene on YouTube earlier, uh, 
and was not impressed. It was pretty bad and hokey and didn't really even need to be in the game. But yeah, basically I did everything but that. I did all the character side quests. I did not do all the side quests. There are a ton of those. I didn't do a lot of the side activities and I was underleveled and I did not feel like grinding to get to this ending. So overall, let's start with a little bit of the story stuff. So you are a fifth year student. You get thrown into a house. I The sorting hat picks one for you, but you can pretty much pick your house as well if you don't want it. But I stuck with mine, which was Ravenclaw. And you do get to go through all the Harry Potter touch points of, or, you know, that kind of world Hogwarts touch points of the sorting ceremony and the house cup and all that stuff. Um, I will note that you can fly on a broom in this game, but the Quidditch season is announced as canceled when you start the game, so unfortunately there is no Quidditch. But the basic story is you can use this ancient magic and you're trying to unlock these secrets and figure out why you can use the ancient magic and maybe follow the path of those before you. All the while, underneath, there is a rebellion brewing among the goblins. And that is led by Ranrock and a guy, a human wizard named um, Rookwood. And honestly, like, these names all run together. They did not do a good job of doing variety on this stuff. But your main quest take you anywhere from going along this main story quest, which is kind of a through line, to doing side quest with, uh, side quest lines with characters. They're still main quest, but it's very much part of... You, know, you have three characters who you meet in the game, and you do side quests for them or little quests through their quest line. Um, those are thrown into the main story. You also attend classes, and classes aren't really what you think they're going to be. A lot of the times, you'll go to the class, you'll have a little cutscene, you'll do something or you'll learn a spell, and then the class will be over. It doesn't really make it fun, and it kind of lessens the tension and circumstances around the story, which I guess kind of plays into Harry Potter, but that was my main drawback, I feel like the story wasn't that strong, because for every large set piece and kind of cool moment, there's also a lot of this downtime where you're not doing a ton of story stuff, and I guess you're, I guess you are doing story stuff, but you're attending classes, you're, you know, looking for an artifact or a relic that has nothing to do with the main story, you're uh, chasing down someone who might be able to help you with something. I mean, it's not... There are laws in the story for sure. But when we're talking about those moments of wonder, it has some pretty high highs. And I think the opening's a pretty good high. It makes you feel like you're in a you know Wizarding World type of story, and it really does grab you from the beginning. And then you just kind of get into the doldrums of stuff and going to class and doing tasks for teachers to learn a spell. And that kind of gets old. But the side character storylines are pretty cool overall. And it's great how they tie those in. There's also sequences later on. So there, you have to go through these four trials in the game. And the first two are very, very boring and dull and kind of long. But the last two are very fresh and mix it up, and I really liked those, and those are some of the best moments in the game as well. I obviously won't go into it for spoiler purposes, but the story overall is uneven. It has some great moments, I think it ends pretty well, and I think those side character storylines end in good places as well. There are definitely some strengths to the story, there's some strengths to some of the characters, I feel... 
I didn't really connect with a lot of the teachers in this game. I feel like there were maybe one or two that I enjoyed them. And you're not going to, but I mean, those are your main, there's students littered throughout the castle, there's the teachers, and there's some that are more important students that you pretty much become friends with and do the side quest with. So I did love some of those student characters, and I feel like those were crafted pretty well. I feel like a couple of the teachers were pretty dull, but are pretty, you know, basic paint-by-numbers stuff, but the characters overall, I think they did a pretty good job of characterizing them and giving them backgrounds and stories, and you can learn as much as you want about them. I mean, some of the characters, obviously, some of the students, you're not going to learn a whole lot about. You're just doing a couple quests for them, and then that's over, but... What is there, I think, is good. They build a diverse cast. I will say, I wasn't really impressed with a lot of the Ravenclaw people that I met early on, and in general. I mean, there was one, I think, that I liked. The rest of them weren't very interesting, weren't very good characters to me. It was the other houses that had the better characters, in my opinion. And honestly, it was Slytherin and Hufflepuff. The other, <laughs> the other two houses left a lot to be desired for me personally. Now, when it comes to gameplay, this seems like almost something out of a forgotten age. It feels very old and dated in its design and the way you move around. I will say the world is pretty huge. The castle is enormous. You have three main areas and three main maps. You have the world map, which is made up of little, um, what they're called, hamlets. They're just little towns and little you know, dungeons and everything else scattered throughout the world. Uh, you have Hogsmeade, which is where you can go and buy stuff, and you can go and um, pick up quests and everything there. And then you have the castle itself, which is pretty enormous, honestly. I mean, you can really get lost in it. So all your adventures will be taking place throughout that. You know, you can get basic stuff for combat. You know, you basically are casting spells that you learn, and you do it just by pressing a button, and then you have a cooldown on it. So you'll throw fire at someone... Uh, with Incendio, and then you'll be waiting for it to cool down, but you do have other spells. You also have just regular magic attacks where you're just throwing spells at enemies that are much less effective, and then you can use your ancient magic and kind of special attacks, and as the game goes on, you unlock more spells. You're basically fighting dark wizards and some creatures and goblins, and that's basically all you fight other than like duels and stuff at the school. But what I mean by an older game is it just feels like a checklist game. And it reminded me of a game, at first at least, uh, Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning, which came out in 2012. There's a fascinating story behind that, and I might do a, a history bit on that at some point in these episodes. But in that game, I get a lot of joy from just picking up side quest after side quest and having like 20 side quests in my queue and wanting to do them all and see them all and get experience, and that's kind of the hook and the loop. This game has that early on for sure. I feel like by the end, you kind of get worn out or bored of that, but it's still a lot of fun. That's that's all that I mean when it feels kind of like older. There's nothing revolutionary here in the kind of task you're doing. There's all these Merlin trials scattered throughout the world where you're basically going through and doing uh, one of, I don't know, six, seven, eight maybe different types of puzzles using different spells, and you try to complete those, and that gives you, oh, extra stuff. I mean, that's, there's just, the map is littered with stuff to do. There's so many little icons on the world map that it's a little overwhelming, honestly. I got excited to do the side quests that showed up in Hogsmeade, or that showed up in Hogwarts, but other than that, 
it's pretty standard stuff. Not to say it's not fun, it is fun in itself, and if you like those kind of checklist games where you're going and doing stuff and checking it off your list, maybe if I would have done... That's the problem, is I was really into exploring the world at first and enjoying the open world at first, and then it kind of got to the point, and that's probably why I wasn't leveled up enough to get the you know true ending of the game, is just because... I didn't find that stuff interesting after a while, and I'd rather just do the side quest and the main quest. And by the end, I was even ignoring some of the side quests. I was just purely doing quests that had to do with those three side characters. Overall, I think it's a lot of fun, and you can get lost in this game for sure. For someone who doesn't play a ton of games, I feel like it's good um, that you could just get lost in it and spend your time in it if that stuff is enjoyable to you. The open world, I feel like, is full of a lot of puzzle stuff that you're either going to find fun or you're not. And yeah, I feel like you could get yourself lost in this game and getting drugged down. For me, I have this massive backlog of games to try to get through, and I was just seriously done with it. You know, sometimes sometimes I will play a game completely and fully if I'm really into it, no matter how long it is, like the um, Trails series of games. But... Something like this when I'm kind of ready for it to be over. And not necessarily the story. Because I think the story moves along at a good pace and does a good enough job. It was just a little too much and a little too overwhelming for me. But uh, there's a lot of fun to be had. You know, there's broom races, there's duels, there's this game where you're pulling balls across the court and trying to get uh, beat your opponent's score. There's a, really a lot of fun in here and packed in here, and I could do the broom races, I feel like, forever. I would get lost in that if there were more than, I think, only three of those. But overall, while it feels a little antiquated, and the combat, sometimes the combat, especially later in the game, feels like it drags on because they're throwing waves and waves of enemies at you. There are these stealth mechanics that you can use to get past people, for sure, and I did use that sometimes, but sometimes there's no choice rather than to fight. And honestly, later in the game, I mean, you're fighting 20, 30, 40 of these wizards and trolls and everything else at once, and it gets kind of overwhelming. You just know that you're going to be there for a while fighting and battling. And and you do, I should say, in addition to your spells, you have some other stuff. I rarely use the other stuff, and maybe that's why it was taking me so long, but... You can grow plants, you can brew potions to help you out. There are, you know, combat-type plants with, like, mandrakes and Chinese chomping cabbages and all this stuff. So there are other tools that help you, and I definitely started using those later in the game as the battle arenas started getting even more tough. But yeah, I didn't really use those early on. Uh, let's see, what else do I want to get into on this? So I think the other part that I haven't got into, you have your gear... Which gets very annoying, because the gear, you are seeing exactly what is equipped on you. And usually that's fine, but there's some dumb, dopey stuff that you have to wear, and it's throughout all the cutscenes. I didn't wear a face item through this entire game, because I didn't want my character wearing glasses or a mask or anything in the cutscenes. And you kind of have to equip them just to raise your defense and your offense and all your stats, but I just didn't want to a lot of the times. I'm like, yes, this is the highest level thing, but it just looks dumb and it's ruining my immersion. I had this really dumb hat that I had to wear for probably half, uh, no, maybe a quarter of the game. And I finally found something near the end that replaced it and I was so happy. But 
yeah, that's kind of dumb. You also get talent points where you can go into different trees. I feel these talent points are very helpful. Uh, the ones that I used the most were the ones that upped your magic spells. And they added some meaningful upgrades to your spells. Like, instead of just hitting one opponent, it bounces off that opponent and hits other ones as well. Those are very good. I feel like the skill trees are very good, but you can improve your stealth or your dark arts if you choose to learn the dark arts spells, which honestly are kind of overpowered. And if you're trying to roleplay as like a good wizard, maybe you don't want to use them, but there's really no downside to using them. At least that I found. No one's commenting on me using them. No one's saying anything about it. It kind of felt bad in the moment based on the quest line that you learn those from. But hey, I think those are very overpowered spells and there's a weight to them when you use them. And I think that's pretty cool how they did that. But yeah, you have all these different skill trees that improve your stuff like that. And I think that's about it for the basics of this game. Oh, one more thing is you do get to a point where you can catch beasts and creatures and you have a little area to contain them in. And that's, I feel like that came halfway or later through the game. So that is another uh, aspect of the gameplay to just kind of mix things up. I grew pretty tired of that quickly, but I could see someone getting lost in that. Overall, I think Hogwarts Legacy does a good job at times of making you feel like you are in the wizarding world of Harry Potter and making you feel like you are in the universe that those movies take place in and the books take place in. There's a really good sense of place in that. At some point, it seems like they're throwing things and references in that don't necessarily need to be there, but hey, the enemy variety gets a little stale. Uh, some of the story stuff where you're just sitting through a class and then learning a spell gets a little stale. But hey, there's enough here where it's a fun game to play. I think it is really fun to play, and that is the core of most games. You know, If you need a good game, it's usually got to be good to play. And I think it is. It feels really good to play. And I like the story enough and the characters enough that it drove me through. At the end of the day, I really liked Hogwarts Legacy. I don't think it'll be one that I'll ever return to. I'm not exactly over the moon about a sequel, even though I think... They can improve on some stuff and make it more fun. But hey, it was an enjoyable way to spend, you know, 40, 45 hours. I did get a little lost in it, I feel like, at times. Early on especially. I think early on this game feels so good. And I, I could see this one settling around maybe the middle of the pack. I think the, for me personally, at the end of the year, especially with so many other good things coming out this year. But I think the... Reviewers mainly got it right when they were floating around the 80s, mid-80s range with this. Maybe it's a little lower than that, but it's a good game. And hey, it's taking the world by storm. This game is selling in a ridiculous amount of copies. And I think that's somewhat warranted. Uh, me personally, if you're not a Harry Potter fan, this might not be for you. I think there's a lot of stuff for Harry Potter fans. But if you're not, you might get bored a little bit going through it. I would absolutely recommend Hogwarts Legacy to any Hogwarts fan or Harry Potter fan or Wizarding World fan, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, that's about all I have on Hogwarts Legacy. So go check that out if it sounds interesting, and I will catch you guys later. We'll move on to the next segment.
Now, in this one, I'm doing a little catch-up in trying to get back and review the anime seasons, and I'm going to go into that in a little bit here, but basically these are just my seasonal reviews where I'm going to go through all the anime in a particular season that I watched and just go over the season as a whole. For this one, I'm starting with the winter of 2022 anime season, and I try to get caught up and get more current and get these out in a more timely fashion, but right now you're going to have to stick with some catch-up. I know since this isn't necessarily a dedicated anime podcast or anything like that, I wanted to kind of give an overview, and especially for those of you, hopefully there are several anime fans in the audience and some who keep up with the modern stuff, but if you're not aware, I wanted to kind of give an overview of what I'm doing how this is broken down, everything like that. So the way anime works is they're in seasons, and it's kind of like regular US TV, except it's, I feel like it's a little more structured in how it goes. There are four seasons in the year. There's winter, which is January through March. There's spring, which is April through June. There's summer, which is July through September. And there is fall, which is October through December. Typically, shows will run in things called cores, and the first core is usually 12 to 13 episodes long, depending. I mean, it could be 11, it could be 13. There's different variations. Typically standard, you'll see now, is a 12-episode core or a 12-episode season. Now, sometimes it's just one, and that's it. Other times you get two cores, and those can either be back-to-back, or they can be A core, take a season off, the core is in the next season. So there's a season in between where it takes a break. And that's essentially how this stuff runs. There's not a ton of ongoing anime that just keeps going over and over. Um, I think something like One Piece is like that, or even um, the Baruto stuff. I think those usually do go just continuously, but there's not a ton of anime that just continuously goes on and on. So that's the basic structure, and what I want to do with these seasonal reviews is hopefully I get more timely and get caught up. My problem is I haven't really, I I mean, before January, there was probably a six-month period where I didn't watch any anime or very little anime. So I am very behind, and I'm getting caught up. I'm through spring of 2022 completely, and what I wanted to do was do a quick winter in spring season anime review for 2022 and then hopefully next time I can do you know summer and fall or maybe just summer I don't know and then fall later but I want to give my top list and review the shows that I watched during the season again I hope to do these relatively quickly after the season occurs the problem is with me and there is no judgment here whether you watch anime with subtitles and or if you watch it dubbed. The thing is with anime, typically I'm going to watch, if we're talking movies, I think a lot of you who have followed my podcast know this, that I am typically going to watch anything live action in the original language and I will watch it with subtitles. 
the difference in anime is I do watch it dubbed a lot. One of the things is I do like to see the visuals more that are going on the screen instead of focusing on the words at the bottom of the screen. And another thing is I just find sometimes the Japanese VO to be very high-pitched and very grating and exaggerated sometimes. And that that's a me thing. I'm not saying the English localization is perfect. A lot of times you'll hear the same phrases over and over, and I don't think it's... I think it's just laziness in the localization in the English dubs. And I get that, and I absolutely understand. I don't know why there's ever been a fight. I feel like you should watch what you want to watch when you want to watch it. But I say all this to basically say there is going to be a delay in when the season ends and when I can actually get one of these put together because I do watch the dubs and I wait for the dubs. Unfortunately, ever since COVID, we used to have weekly. So there used to be dubs that would release in the same week as the Japanese simulcast here. But now we pretty much get, you know, there's a three to four week delay, some even longer than that. And I'll be honest with you, the um, the winter 2023 season isn't shaping up to have a lot of dubs that I'm interested in right now. So we'll see how that goes, but there will probably be a delay due to that. I mean, I can't just watch all of these things and catch up with them like the same week the season ends, but I will try to get through those as much as possible when the season comes to an end. So that's kind of my introduction. I will try to let you know where these things are streaming. Since the Funimation Crunchyroll merger or purchase, it's gotten a little clearer. I do notice there are some other services that are picking up random things. One that was really surprising for the, I believe the fall season or summer season. I don't know when it was. But anyway, there's some surprising things sometime now that are coming up. I hope that other, um, that's a topic for another day, but other streaming services do grab up more anime to spread it out. But it is nice to have a lot of that on Crunchyroll. I'll try to tell you where to watch it. I'll give a synopsis of it. I'll give some highlights of it and everything like that. Now, I'm going to take my seasonal list from, and my synopsises and everything, from Anime Planet. Now, why do I use Anime Planet instead of my anime list, which is probably the most favored of the anime tracking services? Well, my main problem with my anime list is, one, from the scroll view, the titles are in Japanese, and it's hard to determine what show is what sometimes. They also don't give as much in-depth detail as Anime Planet. And if you're looking into an anime and whether you can watch it with your kids or what kind of content it has or what kind of genres it falls under or subgenres, Anime Planet's the way to go, I think. It gives a lot of different detailed subgenres that it fits into. It gives warnings for, you know, abuse, sexual content, violent content. It gives all that and those warnings and it'll tell you I think it tells you what it's rated on there, maybe not, or what it would be the equivalent rating, but Another thing is, a lot of these Netflix anime or some anime that kind of just drop all their episodes mid-season, they don't show up on my anime list. And there's, Anime Planet does a better job of encapsulating everything within its site. So that's why I tend to use that. I still use my anime list, especially when I'm looking at reviews and what people are saying about certain shows, what's the consensus. But that's the broad, like, 30,000-foot level that I wanted to give before I get into this. 
So the seasons I'm going to take a look at are the winter of 2022 and spring of 2022. Now winter is a pretty bad season. Typically fall and spring are the two biggest seasons. I think spring is usually better for me. There's a lot more newer stuff. And usually the stuff that I'm excited for in the fall is returning seasons. And that's another rule, by the way. In these lists, I will include continuing series or sequels of series. And so say there's um, a season one of a show, you wait a year, there's a season two. That's absolutely going to be included in my list. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and give my list from, and I only have seven here, and I didn't finish one. So I will go ahead and notate that whenever I'm doing this. And what I'm going to do now is give you the synopsis of each show and give a brief rundown and where it's ranked on my list. So first up at number seven is the anime that I got into. Now, if I just watch one or two episodes, I'm not going to include it on here. I think I got five or six episodes deep on this one. And this is Sabakui Bisco. The genres for this one are action, adventure, comedy, fantasy, and mystery. But it's primarily an action show. You can think of it as a classic shonen action show. The synopsis for this one is... The story is set in Japan after a rusting wind has corroded everything. People live in fear of the rust that corrodes cities and life in general. A boy named Bisco Akabashi from the despised Mushroom Guardian tribe embarks on a journey to obtain the rust-eating mushroom, a miracle drug that purifies all rust, to save his dying teacher. During his journey, Bisco encounters Miro Nekayanagi, a good-looking young doctor at Imehama, and together they search for a countermeasure against the rust-consuming Miro's beloved big sister. So, I think my main issue with this one is I, I just couldn't get into it, and honestly, that's what happens a lot. There's two things that usually turn me off of anime. If it gets over into the, you know, pervy sexual type stuff, and I'm not judging if that's what you're into... If that's what you're into, then that's fine. But sometimes that can get overwhelming with me. The other reason I usually will drop off is just because I don't have any interest in the shows not grabbing me. And that's what happened here, unfortunately. It is a cool concept, and I think the characters are fine. I just don't think it grabbed me in the end. So I don't have a ton to say about this one. Oh, and I completely forgot, but you can find that one on Crunchyroll with both sub and dub, of course. Next up at number six is The Orbital Children, which is a Netflix anime. Now, Netflix anime a lot of times will run for shorter amount of episodes than anime that goes the traditional route. And this one in particular ran for six episodes. The And I guess I should give the... Um, Studio here, I guess that would be helpful to do episode count in studio. Sorry, still feeling this out. This is new for me. So it is done by Production Plus H is the studio involved in it. The genres are action, adventure, sci-fi, and it has child protagonist, hacking, orphans, outer space, survival. And it is an original work, so it's not based on anything else. This is mainly like a sci-fi one. Um, the synopsis is... In the year 2045, where the internet and AI are commonplace, even in space, this story centers on a group of children stranded in space after a large-scale accident occurs in a space station. 
by using narrowband, social networking, and a drone that they can manipulate through smartphones and low-intelligence AI, they overcome many crises. So, this one is... The problem with a lot of the Netflix shows is, one, they usually try to go in some interesting animation styles that don't always work for me. Now, this one I think is fine. My main problem with this is there's just not enough time to get connected with anyone. The shorter episode links, like, yeah, it's six 30-minute episodes. Like, there's not a ton there. It is an interesting story, and it does take place in a pretty believable and understandable world. It's not really much of a fantasy or a, a stretch of the imagination or anything. But it's fine. It follows these kids. You know, there's some that come from Earth, and they're going to the space station, and so basically, they're trying to survive after this thing shuts down and enter some pretty brutal conditions. So, you'll forgive me if I don't have a ton to say, like detailed wise, on some of these. It has been a while since I've watched some of these winter shows, much more close to the spring ones that I will get to next. I will say that this one isn't bad. It's it's pretty enjoyable and it's short to get through. So. And I'll tell you, a lot of times, these original Netflix anime, I don't even make it through the six episodes. So, The Orbital Children's pretty solid. It's just nothing really to write home about. And unfortunately, that's kind of the theme of this season. Okay, next up at number five is Salary Man's Club. And Salary Man's Club falls within that genre that I really like, and that is sports anime. Now, sports anime... You don't necessarily have to like sports to get into it. I know plenty of people that hate sports or just don't watch sports, and they do like sports anime. It's just that competition and everything, and seeing a team succeed and rise from the bottom or something is very, very fun. But this is done by Linden Films and ran for 12 episodes. This one is also on Crunchyroll. The genres are drama, sports, badminton, and salaryman. And if you're not aware, a salary man is just someone, you know, works in Japan. They're, they're basically like a business person. They wear their suit and tie. They take their briefcase. Uh, they're working just a standard, like, business-type job. The synopsis reads, Makoto Shiratori is a childhood prodigy at badminton, but who never recovered from a major loss during a high school competition. Now he works in the sales department at the Sunlight Beverage Company, playing badminton on the side. So this is something, and this is interesting, and another reason why I watch anime is you learn stuff about another culture that you just didn't know, and there are these companies who sponsor sports teams, and that's what's happening here. You know, this guy was a big badminton star, but he never got over psychologically a loss. So he gets an offer one day from the Sunlight Beverage Company to come, and basically what they do is you go and work for them, He's going to be selling stuff. He's going to be selling, you know, beverages and products. And he's also going to be playing badminton at, like, events on the side. So he's not really interested in being a team player. That's what you see a lot of these times. He's not really interested in selling anything. He just wants to play badminton. He's put under the, taken under the wing of a star salesman and badminton player for the team. And through this, he's kind of guided and has a change. It's a lot deeper than you would think at the base level. but. He's guided through this journey, and he, you know, starts to try and get get back into life and pick himself up and really try in his job and try in badminton and get some joy back in life. And that's what this one's all about. Um, like I said, it's surprising of what you're going to get out of some of these with the drama and the emotion. I think it's it's got some lighter moments for sure, but 
there is a lot of hard-hitting topics here, and it's just seeing him overcome his obstacles and getting out on the other side. This is the type of show that I really do like, these sports shows, and um, this one takes an interesting twist because a lot of times you're not seeing them from this perspective. You're not seeing them from, like, this club play from a business. So that's definitely one to check out. All right, rising up the list, and next is In the Land of Leedale. So this is my number four for the season, and it ran for 12 episodes. Maho Film was the studio behind this. And the genres are fantasy, with subgenres of cheats, overpowered main characters, reincarnation, RPG, virtual reality. And it is based on a light novel. The synopsis reads, The last thing she can remember is her life support beginning to fail. Her body had suffered terribly after a fateful accident, and the only freedom left in her life came from the VR world of Leedale. How did she end up in a place that looks exactly like her game, except that 200 years have apparently gone by? This is, if you're not aware, one of the biggest genres, at least in the amount of content that comes out of it, in anime, and that is isekai. What that really means is just someone is transported to another world. In this case... This girl is transported into, and it's her real, it's not like a VR or virtual reality or anything. She is actually living in this world now, and it's her game world, and it's her character, everything like that. And years and years have gone past, like centuries have gone past since she last played the game. So I think she even has like children and grandchildren and everything like that, or maybe just grandchildren. I don't know about her children, but. Yeah, it's essentially just a fantasy story. There's not a ton to this as far as, like, an overarching story. It's kind of a light, fun story. I mean, there are darker elements for sure, but a lot of it is just kind of going on different journeys and different little side stories and everything else and how she's making her way in this world and dealing with meeting her family and everything else like that. So... There's not a ton of complexity, but it is a fun show to get these different vignettes into the world. And uh, Leodale can be found on Crunchyroll. You can watch all the episodes there. And yeah, this is my number four of the season. At number three, I have How the Realist Hero Rebuilt the Kingdom Part 2. So this one is the, you know, it's the split core. The first core of this one was in summer of 2021. And this is the continuation of that. So this was done by JC Staff and ran for 13 episodes. And it's honestly one of the things I've liked the most out of JC Staff, but we can get into that at a later point. The genres are adventure, drama, fantasy, romance, isekai, kingdom building, magic, management, modern knowledge, person in a strange world, Political, royalty, summoned into another world, and it is based on a light novel. So that's what I'm talking about with Anime Planet, is it does have all these deep tags to give you everything that is involved in this kind of anime and the kind of tags or tropes or whatever. The synopsis is, With the subjugation of the Principality of Amadonia accomplished, Suma, the provisional king, begins the post-war cleanup process. I don't want to get too much deeper into that, but what you have, and because I, I don't want to spoil the first season if anyone hasn't seen it, but or the first part of this, uh, but this guy is basically brought into another world, and he's trying to, you know, he's a, it's like the title says, how a realist hero. So he's very much grounded and 
and practical in the ways that he plans to rebuild this kind of fallen kingdom. And now he's into a point where he's dealing with a couple generals and there's a civil war going on and things. And that's what transpires in this half. It's a very action-packed 13 episodes, I think. And I did really enjoy it. It's not quite too... It's a fine show. It's a pretty good, solid show, I would say, at this level. It's the kind of the next level up from Lee Dale and Salaryman's Club. But I don't really want to go into a whole lot without talking about the first part of this season. So I'm not going to go to much more. But that one is on Crunchyroll, and it is a lot of fun to watch it. If you like that, there's a there were a ton of isekais in this particular season. And if you like that, if you like slowly building up a kingdom, if you like that kind of political intrigue, I think this one's for you. At number two, I have The Genius Prince's Guide to Raising a Nation Out of Debt. This one ran for 12 episodes and was done by Yokohama Animation Lab. The genres are comedy, drama, fantasy, and then you have kingdom building, management, political royalty. So you see a lot of similarities there. And, you know, that's why these two are very close together in the rankings and it was based on a light novel. The synopsis is, Prince Ween is ready to commit treason, and who can blame him? Faced with the impossible task of ruling his pathetic little kingdom, this poor guy just can't catch a break. But with his brilliant idea of auctioning off his country, the lazy prince should be able to retire once and for all. Or that was the plan, until his treasonous schemes lead to disastrous consequences, namely accidental victories and the favor of his people. The fun one about this is, yes, it's a lazy prince who's taking over for his father, who I think has an illness or is injured or something. He can't rule. And this guy is lazy. He doesn't want to do anything. So he tries to come up with the most ridiculous ways. I mean, he's a smart guy. He's just lazy. So he tries to come up with these clever and smart ways to get out of situations and get himself out of this situation in general. And it always backfires on him and results in his his country succeeding and gaining more land and winning battles and just growing larger and giving him more headaches. So I like that synopsis. It's pretty fun and does a good job of describing it and giving you the lighter tone of this one. So this is the other side of the coin with how a realist rebuilt the kingdom. This is more of a light show and a comedy show with that political and all that kind of intrigue thrown in as well. He's still managing a kingdom but it's much more on the lighter side. Uh, that one is also on Crunchyroll, and uh, yeah, go check that one out. And number one in this one is a show that I have gotten more into as it continues on, and that is Demon Slayer. Now, Demon Slayer was built up as kind of one of these new pillars, you know, the similar to what Dragon Ball Z and Naruto and One Piece and all that was. That's what this was built up as. I thought the first season was a little overrated, even though I liked it a lot, but I think, now this was preceded, and they did a TV version of this, but this was preceded by the Mugen Train movie that came out in 2021, which was really good, and I think this continued more of that. So I think it just keeps getting better, I hope it'll continue that trajectory, because we do have another movie, and the things I like about, I don't typically like these movies from anime series, but these ones fit into the continuity, and I really like that about them. So this one in particular is the Entertainment District arc, so this is a direct sequel to Mugen Train. There are 11 episodes, and it was done by Ufotable, who has done the other things in the series. This is really solid. The bad thing 
is that this was only 11 episodes. So you have the Mugen Train that was stretched into a whole season, and then you have this. So it's just not enough for me. But um, the tags are Action Adventure Shonen, which is, if you're not aware of Shonen, it's a demographic for the actual manga or the essentially the Japanese comic of what we would have, like the graphic novel. And it's targeted towards, like, teenage boys. So it's like the action stuff. It's the fighting and all that. So that's what this falls into. The subgenres it falls under are demons, historical, martial arts, orphans, siblings, supernatural, swordplay, and it is based on a manga. The synopsis reads, Tanjiro and his friends accompany the Hashira Tengen to an entertainment district where Tengen's female ninja agents were gathering information on a demon before they suddenly disappeared. In order to investigate, Tanjiro and the others disguise themselves as women to sneak in. So in this world, you have these demons, and demons just kind of run rampant and kill humans, but they don't do it out in the open. A lot of times they're disguising themselves and they're secretly killing humans. And Tanjiro is part of a demon slayer group that goes out and hunts down these demons. In this one in particular, he is on a specific mission that takes place after his adventures on the Mugen Train, and he's gone to this entertainment district to go undercover to try to find Tengen's wives. The three of them were basically undercover. He hasn't heard from them. Of course, they encounter a demon on the way, and hilarity ensues, but this is... Shonen, for a lot of times, will have that serious action and violence and fighting and everything, but there's also a bit of lightheartedness, and you do have that here. Sometimes the humor works. I don't think the humor's as good as it is in something like Genius Prince or Salaryman's Club or something like that, but it is here. I would say this is a step above anything else that came out this season. This is the top by a wa- by like a good margin, but it's nothing that kind of hits up into the next level in that top level of anime. And I think that was my main problem with this winter season. Okay, so in the interest of time, I think I'm just going to stick with the winter 2022 for this one, and I will come back with the spring one on another episode. But I do want to, before I go, because I'm not into everything, I want to kind of go by the season and sort by, you know, the highest rated of what the users are giving it, and go over some stuff that came out this season that I'm just not really into Because I think it was a better season than I gave it credit for. I'm just not necessarily into the top stuff from the season. And there are various reasons why I won't watch a show. Either it's not interesting to me, or it's not dubbed, or it's got probably too much etchy stuff in it, which etchy is essentially like over-sexualized stuff. Uh, So for this season, you know, Attack on Titan, the final season part two, is probably the biggest one. I fell off of Attack on Titan after season two. It's something I'm very much interested in, the overarching story, and I might go back to it, but I just kind of fell off of it a while ago. Sasaki and Miyano, I just, I've never really been able to get into these type of just straight up romance ones, and this is a boy's love, by the way, which is, you know, there's girl's love, boy's love, those are essentially like male-on-male or female-on-female romance stories. This one just didn't catch my eye. I've watched some before, some of the best in the genre, and I haven't gotten into it, so I just did not get into this one, honestly. My Dress Up Darling I did not watch because of the heavy etchiness of it, so the heavy kind of over-sexualization stuff. Teasing Master Tagaki-san 3, and this is just like a comedy kind of of slice-of-life type of show. Um, It's something called... uh, 
it's something called an Iyashikai, and that's just a very much low-key kind of stress-free anime, and I'm not necessarily into that, so I skipped that one. The case study of Vanitas Part 2, didn't really like the first part of that that well, so I didn't continue on. Those are really the big ones that I can think of. Um, Akibi's Sailor Uniform is one that I tried out, just didn't like it. It's kind of a school slice of life thing, just didn't really like it. Slow Loop was one I was interested in. I don't know if I really would have liked it, but it never got a dub, so I didn't check it out. Love of Kill is one that I did check out and just didn't stick with. And then Sayuki Reload Zeroin is one I'm kind of interested in, but I haven't seen any of the previous stuff. And I don't know if that one got great reviews either. So that's there was a Shinmu the animation, so based off the video game. And these are kind of the top-rated ones that I didn't watch anyway for the season. And I say top-rated, I kind of went down the list there at the end. But that's going to be a wrap on Winter 2022. Again, if you like a certain kind of anime, if you have maybe wider taste than I do, which I think I have pretty wide taste in general, maybe it's a better season for you. For me, it was kind of a letdown. But um, I think for some people, Attack on Titan, the final part, part two, or whatever it's called, I think is a big plus for the season. So... I think it's in the eye of the beholder, but that is my wrap on winter 2022. I will be back in another episode with my spring 2022 review. That's going to be a wrap on this debut episode of the Screaming Chronicles. I hope you all enjoyed listening. As far as what you have to look forward to on the next episode, I haven't finalized everything, but like I had mentioned earlier in the episode, I will be doing full coverage of Jeff Keighley's Summer Games Fest, including the Xbox and Ubisoft showcases. And I will also be doing a review of the anime Super Dimensional Fortress Macross, which was the foundation of which Robotech was based on. I'll be reviewing a couple of 2023 movie releases, hopefully reviewing Resident Evil 4 Remake. And I'll continue to catch up on my seasonal anime reviews with the excellent season that was the spring of 2022. That being said, you can follow the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. There is a Facebook group for Screaming Through the Ages that you can join. It is public. You can reach out to me on either of those platforms or by emailing the podcast at ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. I'd also appreciate it if you're liking the show, if you tell your friends, if you recommend it, if you leave reviews on the podcast service of your choice, as that always helps out in getting a bigger audience and getting this out to more people. First, other shows I am on, I'm always messing around with some Phantom Galaxy stuff over there, and you can check that one out. And I'm now one of the official co-hosts of Horror Movie Podcast 2.0. We did a little relaunch of Horror Movie Podcast over there, led by Matt Rawlings, who really resurrected it from the dead. So it is myself, Nathan Bartlebaugh, who is also on Phantom Galaxy, and Victor Rodriguez, and we're just going to be talking about horror every couple of weeks on that show and trying to do our best to do it justice. With all that being said, I will catch you guys on the next episode. (laughs) 